Amen. It's just so good to be in the house of the Lord. It's so good to, it's just so good to be with you guys. You got just a great church. Love to worship the Lord. And uh, worship team, thank you so much for being sent to the Holy Spirit this morning in leading. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're going to turn to God's Word. Just a little excerpt from Revelation chapter 1. Uh, I've been kind of sketching out a series for the fall uh, all through the summer. And uh, I think I'm going to call it a matter of time. I don't really have a, a real kind of sharp uh, title for it, but a matter of time. And I want to bring us through the book of Revelation, which I believe is one of the easier books of the scriptures to understand. If you don't come with an agenda, you don't come with some preconceived theology, you let the word of God speak for itself. But uh, I really felt uh, impressed through the summer to bring a teaching on this book, but in relation to what I believe the Holy Spirit is doing in the church things that he's stirring in the body of Christ now, and also things that we're seeing in our culture. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist, which Jesus said is coming even now, is in the world. And so we, we, we want to talk about that and just uh, some of the dynamics of what are happening in our culture, but also the case that uh, the Lord never leaves our culture without a response, without truth, without a choice. And uh, there's a lot of things he's doing in the body of Christ that are going to uh, lead to a convergence in the last days that we are moving into. And I think a lot of us, as the people of God, can sense that God is doing something. And he hasn't just done that to take us away. He's done that to engage the church in a culture that is without Christ, in a world. And uh, we're going to talk more about that. That's going to start on September 15th. But I've been looking into uh, the book of Revelation. And this morning what I want to share is kind of a simple thought. Maybe it's a, a bit more fact-based fact than, uh, than what you might consider inspirational. Um, but I think you'll be encouraged. Oh, that's good coffee. <clears throat> just kidding. It's just water. I gave up coffee when I got saved. Uh, revelation chapter 1. Uh, this morning I want to talk about the revelations of John. It's not based in the book of Revelation. We're going to turn there for a scripture this morning. But I want to talk about just simply the ongoing revelations that John had in his relationship with Christ over the years that really radically changed this man who we don't really uh, realize when we read the scriptures sometimes because we pass over a lot that is written. But John really was a lot like Peter. And we're just going to see kind of the Lord, how he changed his heart a little bit over time and how the Lord wants there to be an ongoing change and growth in our hearts as well that comes by us being exposed, having encounters with Jesus on a regular basis, and receiving revelations. And so Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 9 through to verse 18. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to uh, Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What that means, the Lord is saying, is that I've overcome death and hell itself, and I have the keys, I have victory over that for all who trust in me. Well, I want to begin this morning by giving us a little bit of background on John that you may or may not be familiar with. At the time of John's writings, <clears throat> actually, he was the last surviving disciple. All the others had been martyred. Uh, you may recall that James was actually the first uh, disciple to be martyred, the first disciple, that is. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, we have an account where he was killed by the sword. Uh, we have history tells us that Andrew, a church tradition, historical accounts tell us that Andrew is Peter's brother, that he was crucified. Peter also, of course, was crucified upside down. Then we have Matthew, uh, who preached in Persia, modern-day Iran. He preached down through Ethiopia and those regions. He was also killed, and on and on it went with all the disciples. Well, old reports also tell us that the authorities, they tried to kill John. They actually put him into, whether it was a vat of some kind, but into boiling oil, and, uh, and the historians tell us that they could not kill him. In fact, some go as far as saying that he was not even burned, and the whole time he was in the oil, he was preaching Christ. And so the, the, the uh, emperor at that time, Domitian, was kind of terrified of John, and he banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he lived for at least a year, and uh, that's where he wrote this book of the Revelation. Uh, John is also believed to have been a relative of Jesus. Um, so how many are familiar with the name Salome? Salome is a lady that's mentioned in the scripture, I think twice in the Gospels, uh, and once again it's believed that she was probably Mary's sister. She married Zebedee, and of course they were the parents of John, and so that made John the first cousin of Jesus. So whether or not that's accurate, though many theologians do believe that, uh, they would have had that connection. In fact, it's believed by many as well that when Jesus attended the wedding at Cana, that it was actually John's wedding. And so Jesus was attending as a guest, and you may recall in that story that uh, Mary was the one who was all uptight because they ran out of wine, right? So she asked Jesus to take care of the problem, and likely the reason she asked Jesus to take care of the problem is because, being the aunt, she was the one who was running around doing all the preparations, taking care of the catering. And so, again, Jesus and John, or John knew Jesus quite well, at least on a relational level. But John also knew that Jesus was more than just his cousin. And that's why we have some of the writings of John. For example, we have the Gospel of John, which is John's account of the life of Jesus, but focusing on the fact that Jesus was God. He was God of very God, God himself, God present at creation. And then also in his letters, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, primarily 1st John, he makes a strong case for the humanity of Jesus. For example, the Gospel of John begins like no other book in the Bible except the book of Genesis. Do you remember how John begins? John writes, in the beginning was the Word. Where do we get those first three words in, uh, elsewhere in Scripture? In Genesis, right? In the beginning, God said, let there be light and so on. Well, John starts with the same words, basically. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word, Logos, was God. Speaking of Jesus, and he goes on to say that this Jesus was present at creation. All things were created by him. So John makes that strong case for Jesus being God himself. Now, it's believed that John was probably at least late 90s, perhaps even over 100 years of age, when he died. But he did not write his gospel, he did not write his letters until some 60 years 
after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So over those 60 years, John had a lot of opportunity to see some things, see some trends going on in the church, uh, read other gospels, other letters that he might have got his hands on. He had a real sense of, of a pulse of the church, what was happening, both good and bad. And so he had an opportunity to address some of those things. For example, in 1 John, there were some false teachers in that day who actually began to teach that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And one of the reasons they grappled with that was because they began theologically to associate the flesh with sin. So they couldn't get their mind around, well, if Jesus is God and he's without sin, how can he be without sin if he has a physical body? And so they come up with this, their own theology saying, well, he must have had a body. He must have been more of a spirit. I mean, he was very kind of tangible, but more like a spirit, a ghost, something kind of ethereal, but he didn't have a body just like us. And so John writes these words in his opening verses of 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, we proclaim also to you. In other words, it was a polite way of John saying, listen, guys, you don't know what you're talking about. I was there. I knew Jesus. I walked with him. In fact, I spent a lot of time with him. He was who he said he was. And John was really the only one who could say that. He had a personal knowledge of Jesus. Now, what's important is he didn't just stop there. A lot of people might have thought, well, hey, I've, got, you know, I've had the opportunity of walking with Jesus. I knew Jesus. Well, the wonderful thing about John is he didn't just know Jesus in that relational way. He had a growing revelation of Jesus. What I mean by that, and many of you are familiar with this, but when you read the first three Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. One of the reasons is because they're quite similar in their accounts and their stories and their timeline of Jesus' ministry. They mostly deal with the third year of Jesus' ministry. They touch on a couple things at the beginning of Jesus' life, but then they jump right ahead to where John was put to death, which is the third year of Jesus' ministry, and they go on and they talk about Jesus' life in that context. And so they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They give a synopsis of Jesus' life in that time frame. What's unique about John is you find so many stories and so many accounts of Jesus, insights into who he was that you don't get anywhere else. For example, the Gospel of John is called the Red Letter Gospel. And why is that? It's because so much of the Gospel of John is actually just the words of Jesus. There's more red letters for those who read letter, read, read letter Bibles uh, in the Gospel of John than any other Gospel because it really focuses on hearing from Jesus himself. John is also called the love apostle. He's the one who uniquely recorded the words of Jesus in John 13 when Jesus said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, that is, if you love one another the way that I have loved you. And, of course, it reiterates that command in 1 John 4 when he says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's what? He's a liar. The, the love of God is not in you. But the point in this is that there is a growing revelation that John has experienced over the course of his life because John did not start out this way. This is not who John was in the beginning. It's believed, for example, that uh, John and Peter actually grew up together. Peter had a brother. His name was Andrew. And it's believed that Andrew and Peter's father passed away when they were young. And Zebedee, John and James' father, 
took them under his wing, raised them, taught them a craft, taught them how to fish. That's why you often see them fishing together, hanging out together, doing things together, because they spent a number of, uh, probably a number of years together being raised by the same father. And so John, like Peter, uh, would have been what the, what the scripture referred to as being uneducated uh, in that day according to that day's standards. For example, in Acts chapter 4, we have this, the case where Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the religious leaders because of what they've been doing through the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders are really upset with them. But the scripture says they were amazed as, as uh, John and Peter spoke because, quote, they understood that these men had no special training or, or education. Now, the translation says that they were unlearned men. They were common men. But I love what the following verse goes on to say. It says that then they realized that Peter and James, had, or, or Peter and John, rather, had what? They had been with Jesus. Isn't that a great compliment? That according to the world standards, you may not be considered that smart, that intellectual. But one thing I can't deny is you've been with Jesus. Because you know some stuff we don't know. There's something in you that's not in us. There's a reality, a dynamic in you that can't be taught in higher education. But that's who these, who these men were. But that's basically where John comes from. So what I want us to see is that John really is a lot like Peter. As you're going to see in just a moment, he's really rough around the edges just like Peter. In fact, Jesus gave John and his brother James the nickname, what? Sons of Thunder, the Thunder Brothers. That's, that's even better. It sounds like WWF or something, you know. The Thunder Brothers, you know. Um, yeah, I, 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 you got me on a rabbit. I'm not going to go there. Um, Sons of Thunder, let's stick with that. Okay, that's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. It's an Aramaic term that essentially means that they were hot-headed. They were impetuous. They were disruptive. They were the ones that, you know, always spoke too quick. And we see that happening. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus is setting out toward the cross for Jerusalem, and he tells either some disciples or, or he tells, uh, you know, some people in the group to go on ahead to a certain Samaritan town. And he says, make preparations because we're going to be passing through there. We're going to need a place to stay on the way to Jerusalem. And so off they go. But when they come back, they share the bad news that they're not allowed in. Now, we don't know exactly why, because a lot of the Samaritan read, you remember the story in, in chapter 4 of John, the Samaritan woman, uh, the people received him as a prophet. They understood that, that he was something, you know, he was probably the long-awaited Messiah. So maybe it was just the fact that Jesus wasn't planning to stay there for a while. I mean, Samaritans didn't like Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans. So maybe they were upset that Jesus thought he was too good or the disciples too good, and they were just kind of passing through of the night. But whatever the reason was, they just said, no, you're not welcome here. Well, they come back and give the report, and what did James and John do? Their very first response in verse 54 is, Lord, do you want us to call down uh, fire from heaven and destroy these people? <laughs> Another translation says, just like Elijah did. Can you imagine that? <laughs> They're not going to let us in. No problem, Lord. You want us to kill them. I know we've been hanging with you for three years. I know we've been seeing you do wonderful things and being merciful. But, uh, but Lord, you know, just, just this once, just this once, let us use this power that we have. Now, I want you to remember that John wrote this gospel 60 years later. So he's different. He's a different man when he writes these accounts. But he's still being honest. And he's still talking about some of the things that he did in those earlier years. And yet as I read this scripture, I felt the Lord really impressed something on me that I want us to lay hold of this morning. That by this time that John speaks these words, James speaks these words, they're in the final year of Jesus' ministry. They're here to Jerusalem. They've had three years of just saturation in the love and presence and power of God. They have seen by the hand of Jesus every kind of miracle imaginable. They have seen by their own hands 
the Holy Spirit working through them and seeing, seeing God heal the sick and raise the dead, all the things that you can imagine, they have experienced those things. They have been moving, been moving in the gifts of the Spirit. They have been moving in the power of God. Okay, keep that in mind. They've seen all these things. God used them in these wonderful ways. And yet that still comes out of their mouth. Can you imagine how Jesus felt? Like, seriously? Seriously? How long have I been with you? What have you seen in me? What have I been telling you over and over again? And that's how you're going to respond because somebody said you can't stay at their house? Jesus says this in verse 55. Don't you realize what comes from your heart when you say that? This is another translation, but don't you realize? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy life. I came to bring life to the earth. Another translation says, you don't know what spirit you're of. It's the same spirit that spoke through Peter when Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. The point is this. God has not gifted you and me because he loves us more. God does not give you the gifts of his Holy Spirit and move through you because he wants to somehow elevate you over other people. The Lord gifts you and me. He empowers you and me with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, with even signs and wonders for one reason. It's because he loves people. And he wants to reach people. And he has to use people to, to reach people. And if you are blessed enough to be one of those ones through whom he moves, you've got to understand that no matter what he does through you, it's never about you. He loves you. He's thankful that you're obedient. He's thankful that you're his child. But it's about the person he's trying to reach. We said it a couple weeks ago, but we forget sometimes that when God gifted you, he factored in your stupidity. Remember that. So whatever God is doing through your life, wherever you are in your journey, however he is using you, please understand, he knows you're going to make mistakes as you grow. But we have to build on the foundation of this one truth, and it is this. Godly character is of greater value in the kingdom than spiritual gifts. Now, I didn't say spiritual gifts are not important. They definitely are. But without godly character, they're destructive. Without godly character, there's an attitude that will use them for their own sake, for my own pride, for my own platform, for my own ministry, for my own recognition, even to the point of being judgmental and cutting where God wants you to be grace and love. You ever been in a service where somebody moves really, really strong in the prophetic? And you're thinking, oh, don't pick me out. Don't pick me out. We don't understand God's heart. I remember a number of years ago, Vanessa and I had supper one evening with a man, who probably one of the first real prophets I ever encountered, who just read our mail. But what so impacted me was not the accuracy of everything he shared. What impacted me was his heart, just the love. I knew how dysfunctional I was. I knew how unqualified I was before God. I knew all my faults, and yet God never exposed one. In fact, I have no doubt that he probably even knew all those things. But they were all filtered through love. And I came away from that meeting built up and encouraged to draw close to the Lord. Let him deal with the junk, but just to return to an intimacy with him. That's the purpose of the prophetic gift, I believe, of all the gifts of the Spirit. But that was something that was really missing in John's life at that time. Let me just say this. I just have a slide here for a seminar we have coming up the end of September. 
And it's with a, a dear brother over in Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island. His name is Joshua Hofford. He's the director of, of Wind Ministries. and had a chance of taking a seminar with him and uh, some of his friends from India a few weeks ago. And so I asked him if he might come back because I, I thought it would be wonderful to have a, a morning together, just three hours, 9.30 to 12.30, but just to have a morning together of us just kind of getting refreshed, refocused, and uh, just no, no matter where you may be in your walk with the Lord, whether you've been stepping out or not or moving the gifts or not, whatever it may be, I just thought it would be a wonderful time for us just to get refocused and say, okay, Lord, we need to, maybe you need to get back on track, need to get realigned with what you're doing. And so as the title implies, it's going to be a morning just about reigniting and uh, just reviving that passion. If either you've kind of slipped away from that a little bit or you just got discouraged, feeling like, I don't know, you know, I've stepped out or whatever. I'm trying to be used by God, but it seems like I fall on my face, whatever. You know, I guess it's just not for me. Wherever you may be on that line, I want to encourage you to join us for a few hours that morning. You'll hear more uh, in the weeks ahead. But one of the things I asked Josh to focus on, which I think is so vital that we miss in our culture, is the correlation between the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the development of character in our lives. It's so important that those two things grow in tandem if we really want to maximize the ministry of the Holy Spirit through us as he intends. So that's Saturday, September 28th. You'll hear more, but just maybe tuck that in the back of your mind. We'd love to have you with us. Now, getting back to John, John is called the apostle of love or the love apostle, uh, a love apostle. But he was a long way away from that. That's what I want us to see. When he said to Jesus, let us call down fire and destroy these people. Okay, he wasn't really in a place of love. In fact, it was only a short time before that, a couple of verses before that, in that same passage that John said, Lord, we came across somebody cast no demons in your name, but we put a stop to it because he doesn't follow you like we do. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine me being on the street corner and seeing somebody who's demon-possessed being, you know, being set free? They say, whoa, 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 whoa. You go to Moncton Wesleyan. What are you doing? That's a glad tidings thing. Now, you know I'm, I'm, you know I'm kidding, right? But that's how silly it would be. And, of course, Jesus has to rebuke him about that. And then in Mark chapter 10, we have John and James. They ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, when you finally come into your place of authority, you begin to rule. Can one of us sit in your right hand and one of us sit in your left hand? In fact, they said that loud enough that the other disciples heard them. You can imagine how they felt. Because basically what they're saying was, when you come into your kingdom, can we boss around the other disciples? Can like we be over them? And Jesus says, no, you don't know what you're asking. Now, there's another account of that happening again. And, and a lot of people think, well, that's just the, 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 the um, disciples, you know, the gospels just mention it again from a different angle. But I believe it really happened a second time. Because the second time we have a different character introduced in the story, we have Salome making the, making the request. And what that says to me is, is that Jesus turned down John and James. But you know the Jewish culture, right? Women carry a lot of weight, a lot of authority. So they're saying, well, hey, let's put mom up to it because Jesus won't say no to his aunt. But, of course, he does. So that's, that's really where John was at that time. But I want us to see is that it's altogether different from where John would grow to the man he would become. And that brings us back to Revelation. John was the man that Jesus chose to record the book of the Revelation. And let me just say this. We're going to do... Uh, Focus on this in the series coming up, but you'll never understand what Revelation is about until you understand who it is about. Let me say that again. You'll never understand what Revelation is about until you understand who it is about. Listen to how it begins, Revelation 1 and 1. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation is not a mystery. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus. Jesus is to pass the revelation on to his servants as we seek to understand those last days. So if you try to understand what Revelation is talking about without understanding who Revelation is talking about, you will miss the message entirely. And one of the reasons I believe in our Western culture that we miss the true message of Revelation is because we focus on Jesus the same way the Jews focused on the coming Messiah. We focus on the return of the Savior who is going to come in wrath, and in judgment, who is going to come to destroy the unrighteous, and that's all we see in the final seven years. It is part of the final seven years, the latter part, but there's a whole lot going on before that that also involves Jesus, who doesn't pour his wrath out yet. John understood that. John was the one who understood it's the same Jesus who said, I did not come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. And when you get that, then you begin to get that end times is not about an escape from tribulation. It's about an entering into a time of tribulation with an unprecedented harvest of souls into the kingdom of God until that moment when Jesus has no choice, time has run out, and the wrath of God and judgment is poured upon the Antichrist and his system and all the unrighteous who have given themselves to him. That is going to happen. But you see, the Jesus that we see revealed in Revelation 1 and 1, he is not only the coming king in the sense of establishing the kingdom, he will do that. He is also the Savior who comes even in the last days, even in the darkest days, he comes in the darkness to seek and to save the lost until the very last moment. And he's going to do that through a church that is full of the Holy Spirit and that burns bright in those days. Well, there's more to it that we'll share. But John had that revelation, a revelation that was growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, were written many years before the Gospel of John. They focused primarily on the third year of his life and ministry. And John shares some things that you don't find anywhere else. i got a quick list here for you. John chapter 2, we have Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana. John chapter 3, we have Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And you just see his heart trying to reach into the religious establishment. John chapter 3, verse 3, classic scripture, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 16, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And next verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. What are you seeing? You're seeing a revelation of Jesus that John laid hold of and that he shares in his gospel. John 4, we have the story of the Samaritan woman that nobody would talk to as a good Jew, but Jesus talks to her. She gets saved. She, she witnesses to her community. The entire village gets saved. And that's when they come back out to see Jesus. And what happens? Jesus says to the disciples, don't say it's another two or three months to the harvest. Look, look, see all those people coming? Today's the day of harvest. It's happening now. But the point being, you wouldn't have any of that insight into Jesus if you didn't have the Gospel of John. 
John 5, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. John 8, the woman caught in adultery. What a radical story that is. John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus weeps. He's touched by the brokenness of humanity. John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. What's he doing while he's washing the disciples' feet? He's showing them, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, you've got to love one another. You've got to serve one another. You see, there is so much we read in the Gospel of John that reveals the heart of Jesus like nowhere else in the Scripture. Why? Because John had a growing revelation of who Jesus is. Sixty years, he's still growing. And that's really what I want us to grasp this morning, that there is an initial encounter with Jesus when you first come to him. But if you are going to grow as a disciple of Jesus... You have to continue meeting with him. You have to continue to encounter him. You have to continue to have fresh revelations of who he is, of his heart. Friends, in these last days in which we live, it's not enough just to think you have good theology, just enough to be saved, just enough to say, yeah, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, just to believe that stuff. We have to have revelations of the heart of Jesus. We have to be able to carry his heart where we go every day. We've got to be able to see people like Jesus sees people. We've got to see for who he truly is, that we can truly convey who he is to people around us because people don't need religion, and they're not looking for religion. They're looking for an encounter with the living God. And the Lord wants us to have fresh revelations. And finally, John had a revelation of himself. And I'll just say this quickly. Let me give you a couple scriptures. John 13, John writes, One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. If you read the Gospel of John, you notice that John seldom refers to himself. He always refers to him as another name or whatever. He just doesn't use his name a whole lot. John chapter 20, uh, Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon, and, Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one what? Whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. John 21, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. In John 21, 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple, what? Whom Jesus loved, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now think about that for a minute. How many of you have read that sometimes in the Scripture and thought, it seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Referring to himself as a disciple. I mean, you name Peter, you name James, you name anybody else, but when it comes to you, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I already believe when John wrote that, because he wasn't using his name, there's a reason why he inserted that rather than his name. He wasn't a comparison with the other disciples. What he was writing was a revelation of the incredible love of Jesus for him. He was so convinced of the love of Jesus for him. He so understood his identity in Christ that he chose, rather than using his own name, he swapped it out with the phrase, whom Jesus loved. Who are you? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's who I am. Friends, what's your identity? Your identity ought to be, I am a child of God. That's who I am. I've got a name. I wear hats. I'm a father. I'm a a wife, a husband, a child, whatever it may be. But that's secondary. Who I am, my identity, my first thought is, I'm a child of God. 
I'm the beloved of God. I'm his chosen disciple. That's who I am. A number of years ago, my sister gave me a little coaster for my, for my mug, and I love it. It says, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and we can all say that. We can all be his favorites. If we really understand how much he loves us, we need that revelation. Every one of us needs that revelation. There were, in fact, times you may remember in the scriptures where, where Jesus had an inner circle. He had Peter, James, and John, and he would bring them into different scenarios that the other disciples weren't privy to. There's a whole bunch of them. But just one of them that comes to mind in John 17, you'll remember, Jesus is praying in the garden the night before he goes to the cross. And the Bible says it is he's praying. He's just pouring his heart out of God. And he's praying one last time for his disciples. And he says things like this. He says, Father, I pray they'll be one as you and I are one. Father, I pray that they will know that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I pray that they will love one another so the world will know that they are my disciples. Now, the Gospels tell us that Peter and James eventually fell asleep. I don't think John did. Because John would later record these words. These words, this prayer would come back to his mind, his memories, the Holy Spirit allowed him. Why? Because he just had this revelation of the love of Jesus, that, that the Father loves us as much as he loves. Do you realize that God the Father loves you with an everlasting love? Do you realize that? He loves you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? He has always loved you. In fact, he has loved you for as long as he has loved Jesus. Everlasting. Not only has he loved you for as long as he has loved Jesus, he loves you as much as he... <laughs> Literally, he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That was his prayer. Father, I pray that they'll get it, that you love them as much as you love me. Because when they really get that, they will love one another in the way that you love them. And when they really get that, the world will see that their love is not of this world, that there is a love from above. And hearts will be turned to you. Because they're not just good people who live religious lives or a Christian lifestyle. They actually have this love in them that loves one another. How in the world can John go? from that selfish, hot-headed disciple who wants to destroy people to the disciple who in his old age, if you ever asked him, John, what's the gospel? He'd say it's simple. It's three words. Love one another. That's it. Just love one another with his love. He kept having those revelations that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm going to ask musicians to join me. Have you ever known someone who was in an abusive relationship? I'm sure we all have. I can remember in high school, I can remember just some of the most, you know, in the natural, some of the most attractive people. I remember this one girl, just absolutely beautiful. And not just, not just beautiful physically, but just a wonderful person, a kind person. And somehow she got matched up with some guy in the football team, and he was just abusive. He took it for granted. He just, he would embarrass her. I'm thinking, why in the world are you with this guy? But for whatever the reason may be, whatever the issues in her heart or home, I don't know, but she would just take it. And, and then finally one day, she just had the strength. I can't remember if he dumped her or she just got tired and walked away, but she finally met some guy that really appreciated her. 
He loved her. He was kind to her. He affirmed her. And you could just tell that her countenance changed, her confidence changed, just her, her life changed. And I thought, you know what? That's a lot like you and me before we encounter Jesus. We spend our lives before we know Jesus just getting beat up getting beat up by the enemy, getting beat up by the liar and the accuser that he is. And he just tries to beat us down as he speaks things into our lives and tries to make us see ourselves in a way that, that is not true. And we listen to those voices. But if you allow yourself to have a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus Christ, then you'll finally begin to realize that you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. You are the person whom Jesus loves. And you know what? I can stand here all day, and I can tell you that till I'm blue in the face. But nothing will ever change until you have an encounter with Jesus and you hear him say, I love you. You are precious. You are valuable. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I believe in you. I want to walk with you. I want to minister through you. I want to just help you fulfill the purpose for which you've been made. You are precious. But that will only happen as you have encounters with Jesus yourself, as you have fresh revelations of Jesus yourself. You may be here this morning, and you've known the Lord for a number of years. You've been a Christian for a number of years. But there's no real joy there's nothing really happening through your life. There's no real anointing. There's nothing going on. You just kind of let yourself settle. And after a while, you've come to believe the lie. Well, I'm, I'm just not that special. I'm not that different. I see God using other. I guess I've had my time. The Lord says, that is a lie. You need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just know him like John did when he was a kid. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. I can tell you some things about him. But you need growing revelations of who Jesus is and you need to allow Jesus to give you a fresh revelation of who you are in him, how loved you are. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Let's stand together, and let's just bow before the Lord. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come. If you're here this morning and you just want to receive prayer, you want someone to stand with you in prayer, or you just want someone to maybe anoint you and pray with you, I invite you to come. Amen. Altar team, would you come? They're just here to minister to you. You may need healing in your body. You may be someone that we just called out this morning and you still have some pain or pressure. Why don't you come? They just want to minister and just see that completely gone. Uh, the Lord wants to touch you this morning. Or you just may need to say, Lord, I just need a fresh revelation of you. Going back into the fall, Lord, as a believer, I just need, once again, fresh encounters with you. Or if you're here this morning and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, you've never met him for the first time, I want to invite you this morning to come as we sing. I want to invite you to come, stand in front of one of these people who would love to pray with you, and I want to invite you to open your heart to the love of Jesus. You might say, I know about Jesus. Yeah, I know enough. I was raised in the church or heard mom or dad talk about him, whatever the case may be, but you have yet to have your own personal encounter with him and a revelation of his love for you. I want to invite you this morning to come. Will you bow your head as musicians play softly? I want to pray a prayer. And I want to invite you to pray after me. All of us are going to pray. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to pray this from your heart and receive him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you died for me. 
so my sins could be forgiven and paid for and I could have a relationship with my Heavenly Father. Jesus, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. But I turn to you this morning and I ask you to forgive me and to wash away my sin. And I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my King and to show me how to live life to the full and how to live in the freedom and the knowledge of your unconditional love for me. I open my heart to you, Lord, and I receive your love. Wash me and fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just remain bowed for a moment? I'm just going to worship. I just want us to linger for a few moments. Whatever fresh revelation you need this morning, invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart and your mind that you leave here in the freedom of his truth and no longer the lies of what you believed. If you need prayer, I invite you to come. If you prayed that prayer the first time to receive Jesus, will you come? Step out into the aisle. We want to pray with you this morning. We want to seal that in agreement together before you leave here to show you how you can walk with Jesus Christ. The altar is open for all of us this morning. You just need to come and say, Lord, I just need a fresh encounter with you, a fresh revelation. Come and find a place to kneel. No one will bother you. But let's just take some time in his presence this morning. We just pray for fresh revelations, Holy Spirit. We thank you.